The Neurotransmission podcast series is created by Novartis Pharma AG to help raise awareness and understanding in the community of neurological conditions. The views expressed in this episode and the podcast series are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of Novartis Pharma AG. Please visit www.novartis.com and then find our focus and choose Neuroscience for more information. everyone and welcome to our very first ever episode of Neurotransmissions. Before we get started, I better introduce myself to all of you as well as my guest who I'll introduce in a moment. My name's Ellen Marshall and I've been living with multiple sclerosis for five years now. I was diagnosed in 2015 with relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. Since being diagnosed, I've really thrown myself into doing lots of advocacy work and I'm really, really excited to be hosting this podcast that aims to bring MS information from experts into the community. Now, our first guest joining me today is Professor Rona Moss-Morris, Professor of Psychology as Applied to Medicine at King's College London. She's been working with people living with MS for a number of years and in 2013 won MS Research of the Year as part of the Multiple Sclerosis Society Awards for a randomised controlled trial adjusting to MS, which compared cognitive behaviour therapy, commonly known as CBT, to supportive listening to help people adjust the early stages of multiple sclerosis. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rona. Did I miss anything else about you? Hi, Ellen. Um, Thank you so much for a lovely introduction, and you did incredibly well to cover all of that. I suppose the only thing worth adding is, is maybe why I got interested in MS, because that doesn't always come out. And I suppose the first introduction for me to MS was when I was a a student at university, and I actually originally trained as an occupational therapist, not a psychologist. And one of my very close friends' father was diagnosed with progressive MS, and he had a, um, a, a type of MS which progressed very quickly. And it really struck me just the impact not only on her father, but also on the entire family and what an incredibly challenging illness MS was. I mean, having said that, I've subsequently learned that he had a particularly severe and progressive form of the disease. So that was really what piqued my interest, I suppose, in sort of thinking, how do we make a difference in this area? And then when I was in one of my first lecturing jobs, I had a a student at the time, I was doing a lot of work on fatigue and chronic fatigue syndrome. And she said, well, you know, I have an auntie who has MS and fatigue is a real problem. And I wondered if some of the work that you're doing on chronic fatigue might be relevant to MS. And it was really the work that I did with her that got me set on the path of um, applying a lot of what we've done in, in other conditions, particularly to MS and MS fatigue. That's amazing. And I think obviously from, from the awards that you've won and all the work you've done so far, it's always interesting to know when someone's got a kind of a motive to, to have driven them to that point in the first place, because I think it can really, really come across in, in the work that people do. They've got that driving force to do the work that you've been doing. So thank you so much for sharing sharing that information with us. I mean, it wouldn't be the situation we're in at the moment without having to ask this question. Um, so how have you been during this pandemic and you know, how has lockdown been for you in general? It must have impacted your work quite a bit. Yeah, no, you're quite right. We can't have a, a conversation at the moment without, without COVID, can we? I think when we look back at the very beginning of the year and look at where we are now, it, it's, it's almost astonishing how much our lives have changed in such a short space of time and none of us would have anticipated this at all. So, I mean, I guess in terms of my work life, where it's obviously changed is that I spend a lot of time sitting down, looking at a screen, 
jumping from one Teams to one Zoom meeting. I've had to adapt to teaching online, which was very different, and do quite a lot of work to get a number of our studies all online, the ones that weren't. So it certainly hasn't made me work any less. I think actually universities are working incredibly long hours. We had to very quickly get all our teaching programs online. And where possible, as I've mentioned, we really wanted to make sure that we could move or sometimes shift and change some of our studies where we could. So I really consider myself one of the lucky ones because, number one, I do have a job where I can work from home and do it all online. Not everybody's had that privilege. I've been very grateful that I've been able to carry on, even though it's had its challenges. Because I work in psychology and mental health and long-term conditions, the other thing that's really brought home to us is that we we want to work harder because there's so much to be done, both for people who've had the condition and then people who have conditions like MS, where I think COVID has had a huge impact. It's created a huge amount of anxiety in communities. And so we've we've been trying to look where we can help and support in that way. No, I can completely, completely relate to that. I've worked in higher education myself and the kind of turnaround of, of all of our academics and staff to, to be able to get those resources online and just the, the stresses that that brings in itself. It's a very difficult time for us all to, to adapt to. Yeah. And I mean, how with you, particularly in, in relation to MS, I know there's been a lot of talk within the communities being very anxious about medications effect on the immune system. Has that been something that's been challenging for you? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just an added layer for anyone living with, with any health condition. So, I mean, from the offset, my anxieties were, were through the roof because I just did not know where I stood. I was seeing news article after news article contradicting itself and some of the top bods that you'd normally go to to get advice from were saying slightly contrasting things and it was a really really hard time to to understand what this pandemic meant for certain treatments i think a lot of people living with ms just assumed straight away that they were going to be more vulnerable but the reality is that for the majority of people living with ms they're not in that position but their treatments may have put them into a category where they do need to shield more and and I've I found it particularly difficult because I have an Instagram account that I run and quite a few of my followers are from other countries. So they're not just from the UK, they're from America, they're from Spain, Germany. I've, I've been hearing lots and lots of different things about processes going on in other countries that, again, are just so very, very different to the UK. So it was really, really hard to understand where we stood. And I think it's been something that dawned on me quite early into this pandemic, which probably made me feel a little bit more relaxed about the situation, was that actually people living with health conditions have been shielding in some way or another for, for a long time themselves, whether it's because they have no choice to, because if they've had a treatment and they're vulnerable for the first few months after, or whether it's because they have something like fatigue that really, really has just meant that they can't go out and socialise as much as they'd, they would like to anyway. So I feel like I've had a lot of experience of being in, in a lockdown scenario, um, as it were. So it's been a very difficult time. That's, that's interesting. So you think that, that maybe some of what you, you have to put up with anyway, with having a long-term condition, has prepared you maybe better? for being in this situation? Yeah, definitely. Um, when the government was saying you're not allowed to go out and you're not allowed to see people, and, and I felt a certain way because that's how society was feeling, not necessarily how I was feeling. The fact that you couldn't leave your house or, or do things, it's not uncommon for me. I'm very lucky with my condition, but there will be weeks or days or periods of time where 
I I don't go out and I have to say to my friends, I can't come and see you in the afternoon because I'm just so exhausted. Right. So it's not that uncommon. And I think the thing that I really missed out on was hearing other people's stories and hearing about that night out that they had or the gossip from when they had a catch up with each other that I missed because no one was doing it. Right. Yeah. Everybody's in the same situation. But I I wonder if that isn't quite a useful example for people when you're trying to explain what it's like to have MS. So, you know, a bit like when you're in lockdown, (laughs) how it sometimes is. It's a, that's a really good point, <laughs> really, really good point, and and something I probably will use to to explain to people. But then on the other side of that, there's this inclusivity that we didn't have before because everyone was jumping on to do weekly Zoom quizzes or online quizzes in, in whatever format they they were using it on, and that's amazing. But it suddenly gave people this connection that they might not have had before. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's been quite a positive thing. And I'm saying this from the point of view who's someone who I've got friends to do that with, but there there will obviously be the flip side of that. Lots of people living with MS who, who don't have that support network around them as much and, and that can see prove its own issues when you're having to isolate as well. So, yeah, it's been all round a very weird, weird scenario. <laughs> yeah, it, it is strange. And I, I think you're quite right with, I think, the whole the whole way we've all had to jump to digital to learn how to teach online. You know, we've had to learn how to do clinical training online, which is probably the most challenging because we do lots of role play and practice and things like that. But it has taught us a bit that actually, particularly when people have disabilities or difficult symptoms, there is a way to connect. So I think this whole world is going to change in that we're going to be offering care much more remotely where we can. I don't think we ever want to stop face-to-face, but I think it does actually make things accessible to more people. But as you say, also gives us ideas about how to socially connect if people are more housebound. I think all the work that we do says how important social connectedness is Mm. in, in terms of helping people manage. I'm really happy that in some ways we're in a situation now, especially with my work, where there are talks about agile working and whether we can work from home a lot more and not having that commute in the morning every day to work that in itself and having an extra hour in bed and not having to to worry about picking out an outfit for the day or something like that it's just that those little things have preserved so much more energy for me like I feel like I've been able to walk my dog a lot more and been taking him on longer walks because I've got more energy to because I'm not driving to work and it's been a really positive experience um, in that sense but then again it's, it's been hard not having the same routine as I would normally have. Yeah so tell me a little bit more about you you mentioned an Instagram account I have to say I'm not brilliant on social media so I've never used Instagram so I'd love to know a bit more about how you use it and it sounds like you've got an immense following all around the world. Yeah, I mean, it's it's still modest number that follow me, but it is something that I'm I'm quite proud of because uh, during my diagnosis, I was very much in a position where I went down the internet rabbit hole of Google search and (laughs) Googling your symptoms, which I know you should never do, but it was for me, it was an okay time, but I could see how for some it could be a very dark time having a diagnosis and having so many different websites and social media accounts and Facebook groups and just so many places where you can go to find information and you know what it's like on social media everyone's an expert <laughs> um oh, it's just really really difficult sometimes to pick out the facts and to pick out the positives and 
I was finding more and more often that I'd go on to these Facebook groups for particular treatments or it might have been a particular medication I was taking and I'd be looking up these things and everyone in the group chats, it was very negative. It was either someone was going on there to find out an answer to a question because they were worried which installed worry in other people or people were going on there because something had gone wrong. Right. And then it dawned on me very, very quickly, where are all these people that are having successes? And the answer is quite simply out there living their life. Why would someone who's been on a very successful treatment and doing very well on that treatment have the need to go into a group like this? And, And at that point, I was like, I need to do something to showcase the reality of of MS and and my reality and it's not a negative reality so I went about starting up an Instagram page and and then it's kind of just grown from there but it's been really interesting interacting with other people and some of the comments I get it makes my MS feel worthwhile right that's interesting so do you do you largely mostly just share the positive stories or do you share all the stories Oh, definitely not. All the stories, um, the good, the bad, and more times than none, the ugly, because I don't always use uh, filters. <laughs> um, right. But sometimes I could be looking an absolute mess, no makeup on, had the worst day, and I would just film. And it's very candid. It's very just saying it as it is in the moment. Sometimes I have regret the next day thinking why did I share that because in the future will this have implications on people searching for me and seeing this stuff there but then I think no because this is my reality and why should I be ashamed of of anything that happens with with my MS diagnosis and I've been quite open and honest about my own mental health on there as well at points and the responses that I've had make me want to post about it more because it's just helping people in a different way and it's giving people the courage to to recognize that they might need to go and get support themselves so it's definitely been a very interesting process for me I mean that that sounds fantastic you're right you know you you kind of you tend to have two worlds don't you sometimes the Facebook world look how wonderful everything in my life is <laughs> versus the support group where, where everything's terrible and I think that's an ex- you know absolutely brilliant initiative and it's true for MS and and probably true for everybody you know you have good and bad days and you want to share the good so that people know what that is but want to feel free to also say that actually today is rubbish and it's rubbish for these reasons and I think what you're saying about mental health is is so important because for some reason we still even in this day and age have this this, the stigma and that somehow if you've got a mental health problem it's it's inferior to having a long-term condition or physical and you shouldn't admit to it and it's a vulnerability and you should be able to manage and cope all the time and I think it's so important that we we shift away from that, both in terms of how we deliver healthcare, but also just in terms of people's normality, just realising that everybody at any time can feel really distressed, anxious, depressed, angry or whatever, because it might be because they have a mental health illness or it might be just because there's a lot of really horrible things going on. No, and, and I, I couldn't agree more. It is still a very taboo subject. And I've used the example a few times now that, if someone living with MS were to get optic neuritis or to have incontinence or to suddenly lose the ability to walk unaided, what would they do? Go to the doctors. Why would someone who's who's struggling with their mental health and their mental well-being not seek that same advice and support? I don't see why there is such a stigma around doing that because 
if you're not in a good place, it's it's not going to support your other symptoms. And I would definitely think that there's more to be done to help. But you've mentioned quite a bit when I spoke to you in the past about your, your digital studies going forward in the future, especially. Do you think that there will be a much more digital focus? Is it stuff that you're currently doing that you can roll out? Can you explain a bit more about the digital element of, of what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a part of our work that we're really excited about. And I think it will give us a sizable step forward towards acceptance of it. Because I think there has been a bit of a digital divide. There's been this idea that if we want to scale things up um, to more people. So for instance, I would love for everybody with MS to have access to a psychologist if and when they need it. And I mean, not that everybody does, but just to make it so that it's a standard practice, just as much as everybody gets to see a neurologist, you would get to see a psychologist. The reality is services often don't have good provision. How do you scale it across everybody with a long-term condition, including people with MS? And so one way to do that is to try and recreate what we do using digital tools, trying to get computers so that they can react in a way that they do what you might do as a therapist, but at the same time, making sure that you're not removing the therapist. So most of the tools that we create include therapist support. So they would be either an online chat facility where the support could be provided or it could be supplemented with face-to-face sessions or phone. More commonly, we do stuff on phone. We now on Teams, although we never used to. Um, And we're also going to be looking at how you can actually supplement maybe with having some group settings for people who want to share a little bit more of their experiences. So it's a way, I guess, of two things. One is getting a broader reach to more people because you can reduce the amount of time for the people can do it in their own time and at home. And then the person who's providing the therapy can reduce the amount of time. So it all sounds great. The, the difficulty is, is the cost of getting digital to the market, you know, but like you've got to get a drug to the market. We, you know, in order to maintain and keep um, digital tools safe and to upgrade them and do everything else, there is a cost involved. So we now having to look as researchers as to how do we do that? How do we make these things part of the NHS? So, you know, this is relatively early days, but we're certainly moving into that area of looking how we can take the research that we do to show that a a digitally supported tool is an effective tool for treating. And most of our early work has been more in fatigue, um, but now we've now developed a product which is to support people struggling with adjusting to long-term conditions. Um, so we're starting to work with services to make sure that we create products in a way that the service can support them because we might create them in the way that we think is brilliant. And then we go to the NHS and they say, this doesn't fit with how we do things. So so we, we kind of start from that point. And once we've got it to work in services, then we actually go to trial and we say, okay, we're now ready to trial the product. And by that point too, we've had a huge amount of input from people, from patients or different groups of people who are going to use the product as well so that they can use it so all the whole development process involves patients guiding the process a lot. Um, we use a method called Think Aloud in that, where we get people to in the early days to start using products um, with us and to think aloud as they're doing it. So, you know, you might be going on and think, oh, I don't like this page. None of this is relevant to me. Oh, I don't like this or whatever. Oh, this is fantastic. I completely relate to it. So we can modify and adapt things through this process. So it's very much a partnership model. Um, we work with people with MS to help us create these 
that's amazing. And there's been so many things that you've mentioned that made me feel, it's, it's really nice to know that you have, well, me personally, there's people on our side and, and want to help and support us because you hit the nail on the head when you said about how from the moment someone's diagnosed, they should have someone there to support them through that. And we don't, we, we might get referred to an incontinence specialist or you might get referred to someone in rehab, but never, ever has it come up for me personally and for a lot of people that I've spoken to has there been any conversation around the support that I can have for my mental well-being and I'm not saying that as, as any disregard to to my neurologist and, and my healthcare professionals because they do such a fantastic job it, it's just not something that they have readily available to be able to offer to people yeah um so it is it's very very difficult and and the early stages of diagnosis one of the first places that I knew I could get sound advice was the NHS website and I mean I can only speak from the point of view from someone living in the UK and in every country you might have very different processes with this but something that really struck me was I had to scroll down quite far on the page to find any information about mental health issues or support. That's really interesting. Yeah, if you were to compare that to type 1 diabetes, and, and I would probably say that they have some of the best support just from personal friends and, and people that I've spoken to about this, you go on that page and you compare it straight away it's link after link after link referring to mental support just to services to, to help and, and support people living with this disease and and it, it just feels like there's a real lack of that within MS and then you face the difficulties of not knowing whether any mental health issues are as a result of having a lesion in a certain place or whether it's because it's a very stressful time having a diagnosis you feel emotions that you wouldn't expect to necessarily feel like most people felt thought that I would have felt sad and upset but I actually felt pure relief when I had my diagnosis right, um, yeah. so it's having to get to terms of all these different scenarios and, and knowledge really is key the more people know that there are options to make those choices and make those decisions for themselves the more likely they are to have those conversations and to to speak to doctors or family and, and get support um, around them to, to help them as part of their MS journey. I mean, do you feel that there is a, a, a big shortfall with MS with, with services like you're offering? Oh, massive, absolutely massive. I mean, I think, you know, if you think about when you get diagnosed with MS, it's, it's, it's usually in young adulthood, but it's usually at a time of your life when you're least expecting to get a diagnosis of the sort is when you know you may be going to university or you might be starting a new career or you might be wanting to start a family and then suddenly wham you've been given this very unpredictable um, prognosis nobody can tell you exactly what's going to happen so it's, it's a huge thing to take on board and I think you know you're absolutely right that mental health should be up there with everything else and managing fatigue is another one that we we can actually use behavioral methods to make a massive difference to fatigue but it's never routinely on offer and it's a great frustration to me that for some reason this is always seen as secondary or something that's not necessary it's almost like the luxury item um if we can afford it we can add it on. i think you you said earlier on in our conversation something that i think is incredibly important and that is actually if, if you help and you support people with mental health issues or challenges, or you help maybe treat their fatigue, actually you can make a huge difference to the, the illness in general. For instance, 
If you're really down or depressed or stressed, often you don't eat very well, right? You, that might be when you're eating more junk food or you might not feel eating at all. You might also feel so low, you can't even be bothered to take your medications or go in for your infusions. So mental health just impacts on our physical health in so many different ways. And to think that somehow it's not a priority, I personally think is really misguided and just think it should become part of routine NHS care. And it, it's something that I'm hoping by the time I retire, I'm getting older, so I have to think about these things, <laughs> um, you know, that if, if there's nothing else that I've done, I've tried to make a difference in that area where it's not seen as something you only offer a special few, but that it's just something that, like you've got an MS nurse, you've, as you say, you've got an incontinence nurse, you've got neurologist you, you've got some form of psychological help and support available what you're saying about you know making that that impact before you retire you're already doing that you're already kind of setting the way and hopefully with with something like covid happening that the digital side of things will will fast track and and happen a lot quicker because there will be more of a a need for that now. Just touching on something else that you mentioned around fatigue and CBT, how does that work? From my knowledge, and, and correct me if I'm I'm wrong on this, normally people are asked to fill in questionnaires. Am I right? When they are trying to access health and mental health services, they normally have to fill in like some questions about how they're feeling out of 10 or surveys. Is, is that right? Or am I kind of off... I think it gets quite confusing because people often think of CBT as one thing, but it's a broad term for a type of therapy. It's a bit like, for instance, you've got disease modifiers as a kind of category, then you've got lots of different types within that. That's a bit like CBT. There's certain techniques. And the, the key premise around CBT is that there's an interaction between how we think, what we do, how we feel, and the impact on our body. Um, so it's a four systems approach. And then all of those things are also impacted by our social environment. It, the understanding is if you can change one of those components, you potentially can change the others. So that's the basic premise. But the way you say, for instance, you would package up CBT for fatigue would be quite different to how you would package it up for depression. So for depression, you'd be mostly focusing on thoughts maybe about feeling bad about yourself, feeling negative about the world or the future, and you would also perhaps look at helping people to engage in more pleasurable activities because quite often what happens when you're depressed, you stop doing nice things. Whereas what we've learned about fatigue is that fatigue is not all that under well understood in terms of the physiology of fatigue in MS, but we know that it's so prevalent that it's more than likely triggered by the inflammatory responses that happen in MS because we know that when you get an acute infection and you have inflammation in your body, you feel very tired and you want to go to bed. And it's what we call sickness behavior. It's your body's message that you need to retreat and allow yourself and your body to fight off this infection. And so that's probably what happens when you have these relapses in MS. This is a very strong inflammatory response and it creates this immense fatigue. But what we also then know is that how people then respond to that fatigue actually can make it worse or, or help make it better. And those are the kind of processes that we focus on in CBT, because some of the things that we do to manage an acute symptom are sometimes different to how we manage a chronic symptom in terms of what's helpful. So when you're acutely ill, sometimes the response is to take to your bed. But when you've actually got more chronic symptoms of fatigue, if we constantly accommodate the fatigue, we can actually make it worse because what happens is we lose routine. We might nap at different times of the day, which affects our sleep-wake cycle. So the lack of routine can actually make fatigue worse. And then often, because we're fatigued, we feel that we can't exercise and do the things that actually would help over time build energy. So all of these things sound simple. They're actually very difficult to change and shift. But it, it's, it's the principles of trying to 
change and alter the things that actually make fatigue worse. So we can't necessarily change the information or the, or the initial incident, but we can change some of those things. But that would be very different to CBT for depression, focusing on very different things. I think the reason why I asked the question about whether there was a survey of things to fill in and, and something that you mentioned that if someone's got depression, yeah. then normally one of the signs that they have depression is because they stop doing things. A lot of your typical symptoms to look out for if you're depressed or anxious, they very, very closely link to MS symptoms. So, I mean, uh, not going out and socialising as much, mm. not being able to, to have simple things like self-care or not being able to look after yourself or not being able to have a, a positive day or get out of bed in the morning. A lot of those are em- caused by MS symptoms. And it just made me, me think if that's something that, that people can start to see differently, MS does have very similar symptoms that could look like depression and and could look like anxiety and is there a way to perhaps make people see that in in a different light or encourage people to go to see someone and speak to someone and not feel like they're going to get palmed off is what I'm trying to say for being depressed when they're not well yeah exactly and I think so so in terms of those kind of questionnaires that you fill in there are ones that are more sensitive to depression um, and anxiety when you've got a, a long-term physical health conditions. So some of those questions, which as you say, get kind of mixed up with the, the illness, are removed and they focus much more just on the mood ones. So, you know, in terms of whether you're feeling low, whether you have suicidal thoughts, and it won't ask you so much about the, the sleep and the other factors which may well be related to the disease. So that is one way to do it. The other thing that we found quite a lot in our work is that when you have a long-term condition and you're struggling with adjusting to it, so in other words, the reason that you've got a low mood or an anxious mood is more to do with your long-term condition, is that we we find that rather than feeling depressed or anxious, it's kind of the combination of the two. So we think it's better to measure what we call illness-related distress rather than calling it depression or anxiety because it is, I think, qualitatively different. And I think it's also driven by different things. That's a really good way of putting it say that again the actual wording that you you just referred to that as illness related distress illness related distress okay that could be a game changer just the way that people use terminology Mm. it takes away straight away that stigma someone's not saying i need help because i feel depressed or i feel anxious they're saying i have got a medical condition and it's having this impact on my life Mm. and i think people would be more accepting of asking for for help and support or having those open conversations because there's something that you can prove and I think with any invisible illness when you can prove something it automatically becomes easier to digest you know with something like MS you're constantly having to prove you've got this invisible illness so to then throw in a mental health condition on top of that can be quite a daunting thing is that something that you use quite a lot do you look at different terminology So absolutely, a lot of our work is all around defining what illness-related distress is and how it's related to adjustment more than um, a more classic mental health condition. It's something we're very passionate about in terms of educating the health professions to make that distinction and to accept that you don't have to have a mental health diagnosis to need support. Letting people know that illness-related distress is actually normal and common and sometimes it's just a phase. So for instance, if you have a relapse and you distress then that's completely normal and it might be that that distress settles down quite quickly 
So we've also tried to define when does distress need help or when is it just the normal ups and downs of having, because what we don't want to say to people is that you always need to treat distress because sometimes actually you should be distressed because distressing things are happening and it's normalising that. I think that's important. But on the other hand, when distress becomes very overwhelming and it feels just too uncomfortable or if it's stopping you do things, then I think it's really important that we get people the right kind of support. And that's why we've devised CBT therapy specific for long-term conditions because we want to focus on what are the things that people are struggling with. It might be, you know, I'm struggling because I've got these really uncertain, difficult symptoms. I'm struggling with the fact that I deal with uncertainty every day. I'm struggling with keeping a healthy lifestyle. I know what things I'm meant to do to stay healthy, but it's really hard. So the focus of the therapy, again, a bit like I was saying, the CBT fatigue, the focus is actually different. So there's a bit of a shift because we we now actually, through the work, I was national advisor for NHS England for improving access to psychological therapies for long-term conditions. So we now have a training curriculum around these principles and we we slowly but surely training people in, in these methods with, with the view that people will be able to offer more integrated care. It takes a while, I think, to make the shift, but it's, it's definitely starting to happen. And that is incredibly exciting for me because it's, it's, it's something that I've, I've wanted to happen for quite a long time. So do you envision that there'll be much better pathways going forward in the future with, with the NHS and you know, healthcare providers? Yeah, I, I do. I'm, I'm really hopeful for that. I guess you, you, you need to see, but certainly we now have a nice guideline all around more integrated care. So if somebody's really feeling depressed, then they might get referred into a mental health service. It's just saying that provision should be within the current service that needs to understand the challenges of the illness and the medications and all the other things so that we know that what we're doing is not contradictory to, to something else. And so it really helps if you're a psychologist, if you're sitting in a multidisciplinary team like that, it really helps you understand the condition and the medical side of it which I think makes us much better psychologists. No definitely if someone has been recently diagnosed and then not being offered the support or someone who's been diagnosed for a while and then they're still struggling to get to terms with their diagnosis or their symptoms what would be your top tips for someone in that scenario what would you suggest that they do? Well, I guess one is, is not being afraid to ask for help. That Actually, that is completely acceptable and you shouldn't see it that somehow you failed because you, you're asking for help and you, you're reaching out. So I think that would be my top tip is, is to go and talk about it to somebody to see what sort of support you can access if you feel that you're needing it. Another one would be also, though, that don't think that if you are feeling upset that you shouldn't feel upset. I think sometimes we live in a world where either everything's all bad or all good and just say that actually having negative emotions, you know, feeling angry or even jealous or annoyed, all of those things are actually normal. They're normal human experiences. And if you had to give some advice to a healthcare professional, a neurologist or someone who is about to to give that diagnosis to someone, what would you say to them? Because I'm sure that there'll be lots of different people listening into this. So what would be your top tip? for those you know I kind of say that I think people should routinely ask people about how they're feeling don't only ask about their physical symptoms ask about how they're feeling in in themselves I think what often happens is people have routine things that you might take you might take blood pressure you know you'll you'll check bloods but actually just as a standard question how you're actually managing at the moment I think that's very important and another bit of work that we've just started to do is lots of questions that I think people don't feel okay asking around sexual difficulties and some of you know the, the symptoms that's just training health professionals to be okay to say how how are your intimate relationships you know are you are you struggling there are there any particular symptoms or things you'd like to talk talk about so it's just asking questions so people feel a lot freer to talk about things which they might feel have a stigma or 
it's a bit of a no-no topic. One of the things that you talked about on your Instagram account, which I think is so important, is disclosing and letting people know. Almost everybody that I know who's managed to do that and do that well has actually found that they've got tremendous growth through that. So it's health professionals asking the right questions. And then I think that will really help the disclosure that helps people grow and manage things better. Yeah, I can completely agree on what you said about posting things myself. It's a relief sometimes being able to put everything out there on my social media account. And it does make me extremely vulnerable. But knowing that I can potentially help that one person have an honest conversation because I was so brave and said it Mm. to whoever could log on to my account and see it it's just giving people that courage it means the world to me and I'd rather make myself vulnerable a million times over if it meant that one person who's really struggling could find that thing inside them to ask the questions and to even it's not even people living with MS it's their carers it's parents of mm. just to to have the courage to go and speak to someone and to realize that it's not a taboo subject and it is something that everyone goes through in some form shape or another but yeah I think it's very very important that conversations are had and and people shouldn't be scared or persecuted for having those conversations. No I know and and you're right you are opening yourself up because obviously not everybody does respond positively do they so you sometimes open yourself to being trolled so it is a very brave thing to do and but I think most people who, who do it find that the responses tend to be overwhelmingly positive rather than negative. And you know what? If anyone turned around to me and trolled me or said anything negative, I'd be like, well, are you doing a podcast? No, you're not. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I've had so many amazing experiences come off the back of, of being open, honest and vulnerable. And I managed to turn that into a huge, huge positive for myself. It's been absolutely incredible hearing about all of the efforts you're putting in, how passionate you are about what you're doing as well. It it makes all the difference to know that that this is is going on and and hopefully one day the results of it will will impact everyone living with MS and, and everyone will be able to get the support that they need and that would be an amazing end goal for it. Is there anything else that you you wanted to mention or or touch upon? No, I think that's great. You know, it's been an, an absolute pleasure talking to you and finding out about the amazing things that you're doing to to manage your MS and to help other people out there. I'm very keen to work with people in MS and, and getting it right because sometimes what we do, we don't always know the details. So hearing people's stories is a privilege for me and see how we can make a difference. So hopefully we can take the, the next steps forward together with you and the community just to make sure that these things happen because they are incredibly important. So So thank you for the time. It's been a real privilege. No, no, definitely. And and thank you because I started off this journey five years ago barely knowing what MS is. And I've been so exposed to such wonderful people. My knowledge around MS, I've become an expert by default. Um, I haven't gone to medical school and I've got a drama degree and I've ended up in this situation and having conversations with you helps me have the confidence to speak more openly and honestly on my social media account and and I hope anyone who's listening to this today has has really enjoyed this conversation. I can't thank you enough Rona for, for all the work you're doing in the community and for joining us today. Thank you very much Ellen. I hope that you will join me for the next episode of Neurotransmissions. The Neurotransmissions podcast series is created by Novartis Pharma AG.